Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It's my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week Vijay Prashad. He is Professor of International Studies at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. He is the author of over 20 books, most recently, The Death of the Nation and the Future of the Arab Revolution. He reports regularly for Frontline and The Hindu in India, Birgun in Turkey, and Alternet in the United States. He is the chief editor of Leftward Books in New Delhi. Vijay Prashad, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thanks a lot, David. Uh, thanks for coming on. I, I've got the flu at the moment. I'm going to let you do most of the talking here. <laughs> you, you've got a number of wonderful articles recently on Alternet, which is where I read them, uh, in, including one uh, about the rehabilitation of George W. Bush war criminal. <laughs> is, is that for real? Are people who oppose George W. Bush somehow now uh, approving of him? Well, David, let's go back to um, the beginning of the Obama administration. It's not really a question of now. It's a question of then. You might remember that Mr. Obama's political career skyrocketed when he opposed the war against Iraq. You know, uh, he made a speech in Chicago as a state senator, uh, took a very strong position against um, the Bush war against Iraq, and, uh, you know, said that it was because of that that the United States, in fact, was not as safe, perhaps, as it could be. In other words, he took on the Republicans on the grounds of national security. And, uh, you know, he gained a lot of support for that. People were quite impressed by him. Well, uh, right after winning uh, the presidency... Uh, Mr. Obama essentially uh, basically gave the entire Bush administration amnesty. You know, at no point was there an attempt to open an investigation into the lies that led, uh, you know, to the destruction of Iraq. At no point was there any call for an investigation on the torture regime, uh, on the question of uh, Guantanamo. You know, he said, I'm going to close Guantanamo, but he never said, let's go back and look at the culpability of people in the Bush administration in the violation not only of American law, but international law. I mean, you know, this might sound uh, maybe slightly cranky for people, but we have to remember that the UN Secretary General, Kofi Annan, called the Iraq war an illegal war, which means, of course, technically, if you take him seriously, take his language seriously, if somebody prosecutes an illegal war, well, the prosecutor of that war is then a war criminal. And there should at least be an investigation. In Britain, uh, to the credit of the government that followed the Blair government, and, you know, I'm talking about the parliament more than the prime minister, they pushed for an inquiry. And there was an inquiry into the lead-up uh, of Britain's involvement in the war. I'm not saying that that inquiry was as good as I'd like it to have been, but at least there was an inquiry. And former Prime Minister Blair had to come to the table and sit down and answer questions. Mr. Obama gave, as I said, amnesty uh, to George W. Bush and people around him. And now, of course, there's a kind of cultural amnesty being provided to George W. Bush. You know, there are these stories that have been trafficking about how George W. Bush and Michelle Obama are best friends. They like each other. Uh, he, she likes his sense of humor. You know, he's been on tour with a book of paintings that he's done 
of war veterans. And I watched a series of these interviews, and I was quite startled that none of the so-called journalists that interviewed George W. Bush asked him some basic questions. For instance, these are portraits of Iraq war veterans uh, who have been badly you know, damaged by that war. But there's no painting of Iraqis uh, from that war, including civilians who died tragically in that war. There are no paintings of U.S. soldiers who died. So, you know, this is a whitewash of the Bush legacy. If he received legal amnesty in 2009, he is now receiving a kind of cultural amnesty. I think that's very unfortunate. I, I think you have a very good point. I, I think we should add to the account of Obama's career that as soon as he got into the Senate, he voted to to fund the wars over and over again, and after he became president, continued the wars and started new ones. And if we look at the transition from Bush to Obama to Trump, we see a steady and predictable progression uh, in terms of presidential powers to launch wars without Congress, make laws without Congress. I, I mean, it, Bush at least went through the formalities of lying to Congress and asking Congress for a vote and so forth. So, you know, there are certain sort of reasonable ways in which people might look back uh, to the to, to Bush as, as a mass murderer, but as, uh, you know, things having gotten worse since Bush uh, because of letting him off the hook. You know, it's a funny thing, David, that this is not just the sequence of Bush, Obama, Trump. You know, there's a way in which, because things keep seeming to get worse and worse, that you develop nostalgia for what came before. So there was a time when people looked back, and I'm talking about liberals, looking back at Reagan even, and Nixon, you know, and saying that, look, Nixon at least was in favor of uh, national guaranteed income. Yeah. So if, if Richard Nixon's platform was put forward today, he would to some extent be to the left of the Democratic Party. That's right. So things have progressively gotten so much worse that there is this tendency to look back at previous people and say, you know, maybe they weren't so bad after all. I think this is an indictment of the kind of slippery slope uh, you know, down which the American polity is traveling. Yes, I, I don't think we should uh, say, you know, the current state of affairs is bad, therefore a previous state of affairs was good. It, it just may have been less bad in, in some ways. But uh, I, I wonder if part of the willingness to rehabilitate George W. Bush is is based on the fact that although he was more murderous and killed more uh, people far off in distant lands, uh, he was, he's thought of as less racist, less misogynistic, uh, less of a buffoon even than, than Trump. You see, this is a dangerous proposition. And uh, I think the idea that Trump should be defined by his stupid tweets or his rhetoric or his really inability to put a full sentence together, I, I think this uh, is a dangerous game to play, because it fails to look at the records of these people. You know, yes, uh, right after 9-11, uh, Mr. Bush was under pressure uh, to say that all Muslims aren't bad, we're not, you know, in a war against Islam. But there were winks and nods even at the time. And you'll remember that at the time, there were these mini-scandals of 
a general speaking in Colorado talking about a crusade, uh, Bush himself using the language of crusade. And then by 2006, uh, Bush started using the phrase, you know, radical extreme, uh, radical Islamic extremism, which is a phrase that the Republican right seized on and used that phrase to bash Obama and to bash Hillary Clinton, saying, why can't you say this phrase, radical Islamic extremism? Everybody knew when they used that phrase, what they really mean is Islam. They indict Islam. And that is why King Abdullah II of Jordan has for, you know, the last 10 years or so been cautioning the Americans, saying, you know, you are using this inflammatory rhetoric. It's making it difficult for your allies in the region uh, to operate against groups like ISIS, etc. And I was quite stunned to hear Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State, um, at a meeting of the 68 countries and organizations that are part of this anti-ISIS coalition, Secretary Tillerson quoted from King Abdullah II. You know, so, so here you have the kind of buffoonish things that Trump says, etc., but he is within the consensus of uh, you know, oscillating between fiery rhetoric against Islam, racist language, and then at the same time, you know, uh, this kind of uh, sober language that they talk among each other. So what I'm saying is, you remember that when George W. Bush was the governor of Texas, he made some really nasty statements, racist statements, and then callous statements about people that he was executing. You know, the disabled person was being executed, and he was, you know, snickering and making jokes. That's not so different than the, you know, the kind of uh, the kind of horrible display for Mr. Trump when he made uh, fun of a, a differently abled reporter, uh, you know, in one of his campaign stuff. But we forget this. We forget that George W. Bush did exactly the same thing as the governor of Texas. So I think there is this way in which to protect ourselves. From the terribleness of the present, we manufacture a more positive past. And I, I mean, I can understand that. I see why people do that. It's because you don't want to uh, believe that, you know, this is a historical dynamic. You want to believe it's an aberration. And if it's an aberration, then it will, it will go away. You know, if it's a historical dynamic on the other side, you have to uproot it. You have to struggle very hard. Uh, to make sure that this doesn't have uh, an existence beyond the current occupant of the White House or of this house or of that house. So I understand why people want to believe that Trump is racist and when Trump goes, somebody better will come. But this is not about Trump. It's not about George W. Bush. It's about this theme in American history that needs to be uprooted. Yeah, I, I think, uh, Vijay Prashad, we can add that uh, Barack Obama said, I'm good at killing people, and bragged about bombing eight countries, and uh, they weren't they weren't predominantly white Christian countries. Uh, looking at looking at the actions of these governments, uh, you've written recently also about Trump's war making in in Syria and Iraq, continuing Obama's and Bush's, and and how Turkey's goals are are quite different from U.S. goals. What's what's the latest in in your view of of what's happening in in Syria and Iraq? Well, you see, it's interesting. There were people during the election who, I think quite correctly, worried that Hillary Clinton's platform was very hawkish. And they falsely assumed 
that uh, Donald Trump was the inheritor of American isolationism, you know, which is a, a strand in far-right thinking in the United States. But uh, Trump was never an isolationist. You know, he, uh, like his uh, compatriot Ted Cruz, had promised to bomb ISIS with great ferocity. I mean, Ted Cruz was genocidal in his language. He, in fact, said, we, you know, use, threatened to use, you know, some kind of either nuclear weapons or chemical weapons because he said, we will make the desert glow. You know, this is genocidal language that that strand of the Republican Party was using. So, uh, to my mind, David, during the election, I never saw much of a difference between the Clinton uh, hawkishness and, you know, this great brutality from uh, Trump and Cruz and others. You know, I, I didn't see any uh, evidence of isolationism. I was puzzled when people said, well, on foreign policy, at least Trump is not going to go and overthrow countries. Uh, I, there's no evidence that he wouldn't. And indeed, uh, since coming to office, they've ramped up the bombing in uh, Iraq and in Syria. And uh, there have been, I think, uh, quite grotesque uh, uh, you know, episodes of massive civilian death. Um, Air Wars, which is a non-profit group that monitors civilian casualties, showed that in the first week of March, there were a thousand civilian casualties as a result of U.S. bombing raids. There's a great brutality here. And then, uh, you know, the various very hesitant and slow moves towards the ceasefire, peace deal, etc. As these uh, were coming together, you had the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. Uh, her name is Nikki Haley, former governor of South Carolina, absolutely no experience in foreign affairs. Uh, but Ambassador Haley then says that, once again, repeats that slogan. She doesn't directly say Assad must go. In other words, uh, Bashar al-Assad, uh, the current president of Syria, must go. But she said that he is a hindrance to peace, which is basically the same thing. You know, so uh, to my mind, the United States is not operating in this region uh, to help facilitate any peace moves. In fact, quite the opposite. Uh, it's been... Uh, churning up uh, the kind of internal contradictions in both, uh, but mainly Syria, but also in Iraq, is such that, you know, of course, the Turkish government has now abandoned its pro-Western orientation, and it's uh, gone into, to some extent, the camp of the Russians, uh, of the Iranians, etc. And even uh, there, uh, this internal kind of American uh, paranoia about Russian intervention, etc., has destroyed the possibility of any Russian and American collaboration. And I don't mean collaborate together to divide up Syria. This is not the era of Sykes-Picot where the French and British divided it up. But come to some understanding and try to bring the temperature down in Syria. All that is off the table, you know. And so instead you see the United States bombing ferociously in northern Syria. Uh, you see the uh, U.S making diplomatic uh, statements that suggest that it doesn't want to calm the tensions down in the country. And here, uh, to, to be you know, perfectly frank, the, if Hillary Clinton had been president, it would have been almost exactly like this. So I'm afraid the American consensus regarding a war-making around the world, disregard for peace in other lands, uh, is continuing uh, business as usual. 
wasn't the wasn't the silver lining that people thought they perceived in Trump not that he would be less militaristic he wanted a bigger military kill their families steal their oil and so forth but but that there was one country he seemed like he might be less hostile to and that was Russia uh, and that he seems to have come under uh, under considerable pressure uh, to become more hostile toward Russia. Here you are correct. Yes, indeed. Uh, but again, let's uh, go back. You will remember that when Hillary Clinton became Secretary of State, she also wanted a reset. Uh, there is an understanding, I believe, in the U.S. foreign policy establishment that uh, the temperature or the, the tensions between the United States and Russia are at too high a point. You know, there was a moment when the Soviet Union collapsed and uh, Boris Yeltsin essentially became the American man in Moscow. At that time, there was a hope uh, that um, Russia would become a so-called partner of the West. In other words, as American power became totally global without any real challenger, it was hoped that Russia would become something like Germany, uh, Britain, France, etc. You know, have nominal independence in terms of its foreign policy, but really along the grain of American interests. And so the group of seven countries, which had been created in 1974, uh, now brought Russia on board. It became the group of eight. Um, at this same period, Russia was, of course, at a great low point. Uh, the economy had collapsed. Um, you know, the political situation inside the country was in uh, very great turmoil. The uh, so-called oligarchs were stealing everything in the country. And the place was a mess. And then you had the emergence of a new generation of leaders coming out of the old apparatus who wanted a stronger Russia. They, they, I think, felt humiliated by the 1990s. And among them was Vladimir Putin. Putin is not you know, a singular figure. He represents a generation of people who are now in their 50s and 60s who were humiliated by the 1990s. And these people uh, you know, wanted to rebuild the military. Their first test case was in Chechnya, and they were deeply suspicious uh, of the attempt by NATO, uh, the non, uh, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, to move uh, its border right up to the Russian uh, right, right up to the Russian border. At the same time, they were quite suspicious of moves by the United States and its allies uh, to encircle China. You know, the strategic uh, apparatus inside Russia was as worried about the move of NATO towards the Russian border as it was about the reestablishment of American bases uh, along the Pacific Rim. You know, the Americans, after the Cold War ended, initially left the Philippines base at Subic Bay and then returned. And this return of the base, a ratcheting up of rhetoric around encircling Eurasia, I think uh, was marked this generation. You know, if, if one thing marked them, it was the humiliation of the 1990s, and the second was what they saw as an American attempt to keep, keep them on their knees. And so in the American foreign policy establishment, there has been a section that has wanted to bring the temperature down between the United States and Russia, restart uh, you know, some kind of talks over nuclear weapons, restart talks about collaboration in the world order, etc. You know, and there's another section in the foreign policy establishment that seeks to drive a wedge in Eurasia between Russia and China. One section says, go after the Chinese, um, you know, concentrate your venom on them and make friends with Russia. 
The other side says, no, uh, befriend the Chinese and use your new friendship with the Chinese against the Russians. By the way, the leader of the second um, you know, strand is Henry Kissinger, who's been directly saying, befriend the Chinese, attack the Russians. Uh, initially, uh, this was the Trump position. You split the Chinese and Russians, befriend the Russians, attack the Chinese. Uh, but this has fallen apart for reasons that I think have very little to do with the foreign policy establishment itself and have everything to do with the fact that it is probably the case that both the Russians overplayed their hands and the Democrats were very uh, angry about the election result. And now, of course, the so-called reset that the foreign policy establishment wants to see one way or the other is not happening. Meanwhile, the Russians and the Chinese have cemented the economic ties as Russia finds itself being sanctioned in Europe. It started to sell energy with increasing volumes into China. Russia and China have now uh, militaries that uh, do war games together. They are so integrating their militaries, they're integrating the strategic understanding. So I think these various approaches to isolate uh, Eurasia or to break Eurasia up are not going to work. And so even if Trump had succeeded uh, in making an outreach to Russia, I think the game of uh, making Russia a friend and China the enemy would not have worked. It seems, though, that Russia in recent, in just the past few years, has cut its military spending from about $70 billion down to about $48 billion a year, while the United States is up above $700 billion and increasing rapidly, with U.S. officials almost openly talking uh, in the media about the, the motivation of profit for the, for the hostility with Russia. I, I mean, how much of this is not geostrategic, uh, but simply corruption in Washington, D.C.? Well, this, David, will take us for several hours. <laughs> well, we, we have several minutes. Militarism. But the quick uh, answer is um, that, uh, yes, you know, the, the increase that Mr. Trump has requested on the military budget of $54 billion is itself 80% of the total Russian budget for its military. So the scales are uneven. Uh, one of the reasons the Russians have been cutting their military budget is because they have faced problems as commodity prices drop. You know, I, I don't think we should ex uh, read the decline in military spending as somehow, uh, you know, an indication that the peaceniks have taken power in Moscow. That's not the case. It's that they have economic problems and they're cutting down uh, on their military spending. You, you may remember that during the Chechnya war and after the Russians rapidly increased military spending because they said that during the Yeltsin years, those years of great humiliation, the military had been destroyed. So, you know, the rhetoric of Putin actually in those years is similar to the rhetoric of, of Trump now, saying the military needs to be rebuilt, you know, it has been squandered by my predecessor, etc. So there was a high point in military spending, then there was the commodity boom collapse, and they de had to decline in their military spending. The United States is a very curious country. You know, here uh, it has become structural in the economy for so-called counter-cyclical spending. In other words, spending that governments do when the economy is in a downturn. In most civilized countries, counter-cyclical spending happens in education, healthcare, you know, uh, civilian infra infrastructure, etc. In the United States, counter-cyclical spending basically happens through military spending. And it's often deficit finance. 
So it's going to go into the debt, the long-term debt of the country. And that's what uh, Mr. Trump understands that he can do. You know, he promised major civilian infrastructural spending. I don't think he's going to be able to get that money. You know, these people, the so-called freedom caucus and these so-called fiscal conservatives, they are conservative on everything except military spending. You know, that's why it's easy to do counter-cyclical spending on the military side of the budget. Because these fraudulent conservatives, for them, they want to conserve on every social program. moment you say, let's buy a gun, they're like, that's great, let's go do it. There's no fiscal conservatism when it comes to military spending. You know, that Freedom Caucus should have been lined up in front of the White House protesting that $54 billion increase uh, on the military side that Trump had requested. But they're not going to be there. You know, this you can continue to do, and nobody challenges you, neither the Republicans nor the bulk of the Democratic Party. So this is a little game that gets played um, in Washington, D.C., and I think I would hesitate before over-reading uh, the decline in Russian military spending. Yes, I, I, without attributing motives to, to Russia, it, it simply helps with the U.S. argument that Russia is not a, a threat of global domination when its military is being cut and the U.S. is ten times the size. Uh, but we, we have just a, a few minutes left. Vijay Prashad, I, uh, I think it, you, you hit something where you said neither the Republicans nor the Democrats will oppose because, in fact, there isn't even any conversation in the U.S. media about the, the increase in military spending. You have the Democrats opposing the cuts to everything else, uh, giving people the misunderstanding that, uh, that Trump's proposing a smaller budget and cutting things. Uh, and so you have the, the small government people out there in favor of it, uh, when in fact he's moving the same size budget, moving money from everything else to the military. How will we... How will we ever stop that uh, if no one will even talk about it? Well, look, I mean, the idea that the United States needs to spend at least $700 billion a year, that's the public military budget. God knows what the secret budget is. There's money for joint special operations command. We don't know what is spent. That $700 billion a year of, of, of scarce public resources is spent towards this military, which finds itself able to bomb countries, but not actually, uh, you know, uh, take control of them, uh, should send a very serious uh, signal to the public. I mean, we need to talk about the failed war in Afghanistan, where the Taliban is back. We need to talk about the fact that the United States made an immense strategic, for its own personal understanding of the world, immense strategic error by taking out both the Taliban and uh, the government in Iraq, because that, of course, you know, removed from world history Iran's two great adversaries on Iran's two borders. So here you have this massive military power used so poorly, able to bomb from the sky, kill civilians, but not able to actually win the hearts and minds of people. Surely there's a better way uh, to do it than buying more B-52s, more nuclear submarines. Surely there are ways in which to strengthen the diplomatic core, uh, surely there's a way to improve relations with people uh, through student exchanges and such like. You know, I mean, one has to be quite aggressive in arguing against the idea that security is won through military force. It seems to me security is won through human interaction and not through military force. 
In fact, the argument that it's one through military force is entirely erroneous, and history shows us that it's human-to-human interaction that builds real security. And I think the country has forgotten that. It's it's a great point to end on. We're out of time. Vijay Prashad, professor of international studies at Trinity College, your latest book, The Death of the Nation and the Future of the Arab Revolution. Thank you very, very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.